0: This is Top CEO.
1: The show about CEOs making tough decisions. Featuring CEOs from startups, scale-ups, and Fortune 500 enterprises, Top CEO is a business school case study, telling the story behind the story and what you can learn from it from those who have faced the fire and come out the other side. Welcome to the Top CEO podcast. This week,
2: we've curated some of the most compelling insights from top CEO, distilling them into essential takeaways for you.
3: Enjoy.
4: We launched that website. Literally within a day, 40% of our traffic to Brambleberry.com completely evaporated.
3: You know, this entrepreneurship thing is easy. I can go be international businessman. And in the course of a year, I lost all the money that I had made from the first company. I contracted a parasite and lost my girlfriend.
5: They literally kicked me out of meetings. I would go into television organizations and talk about how digital is going to disrupt what you're doing. It's gonna be digital, it's gonna be programmatic, it's gonna be data. I literally was physically removed from some organization.
0: I was basically drinking myself to death.
6: Starting psychiatry was born out of me trying to find care myself, having trouble understanding why I couldn't find a psychiatrist that accepted insurance in one of the most densely populated cities in America, which was New York.
4: Can't get anything in. Nobody can come to work, right, in any of our factory, in any of the factories we buy from. I say
0: believe in freaking magic or believe in yourself or believe in the world and take steps out there because it's too afraid to not believe.
2: Imagine you're the CEO of BrambleBerry. Driven by the love of the craft, you don't just provide the ingredients to make soap, candles, and cosmetics. You also teach people how to make them. As your company grows, you face a series of challenges. A devastating flood that wipes out your entire warehouse inventory. 2. A website transition that costs you 40% of your Google traffic overnight. 3. A global pandemic that disrupts your supply chain and forces you to adapt quickly. The question is, how will you navigate through these trials and transform them into opportunities for growth and success? This is exactly the story of Anne-Marie
1: Fayola the founder and leader of Brambleberry. To give a sense of perspective. How much inventory was there? How much in, I don't know, units or dollar terms to sort of walk in in the morning and see what has happened?
4: It's like 25% of all of our inventory. So like think about bottles and um, lotion bases and soap bases and just it's right. So we're stacking it as high as we can, but all the whole first layer is all gone. And the warehouse itself wasn't all that big, maybe 2000, 3000 square feet. And so of it was gone. And the landlord said, not my problem. Mm, You should have been stacking on pallets. And the insurance company said, it is a landlord's problem. We're not paying for it. And meanwhile, I had to figure out how to replace all that inventory. And so then I just put it all on credit cards and hoped against wild hopes and prayers that I would be able to pay it off over time.
1: And you had to replace it. You had orders still coming in that you needed to ship and fulfill. What did you do? You took the products that were up higher that weren't affected by water and you shipped those. And then you tried to quickly go back to manufacturing for everything else.
4: Yeah, and then we out of stock stuff, right? You know, hey, we're so sorry it's out of stock. Um, But that's how when I was 27 years old, I found myself $282,000 in debt. I mean, and that's at 27 years old. Like there is no one coming to save you at 27 years old when you've got $282,000 in debt because of what seems like bad business choices.
1: It is, but it's not your fault. Is it your fault? Did you beat yourself up over that? Or how did you manage to move on? Because at that point, if you're 27 years old, I mean, also you've built a three to $5 million business. You employ real people. That's a lot to be excited about. Not a lot of people would foresee that your landlord make a hole and that's going to, threaten the existence of your business. So what was the emotion of this? Are you just a person who can move on and you can compartmentalize? Cause I don't know if I could, I'd be pretty mad.
4: I think anger is very galvanizing. And so I got angry. I was angry at the landlord primarily. So I directed all my anger at him. And then I got really angry and decided I never wanted to be under a landlord again. And so I went and I found my very first warehouse that I could buy And I started calling banks to see if anybody would loan me the $880,000 to help me buy this warehouse because I didn't want to deal with that landlord, but I also never want to deal with another landlord again. It's one thing when you make your own mistakes and you own it and go, okay, I own it. I learned from it. Thank goodness I can come back from it. But it's another thing when it's not your fault and then you just have to recover.
1: So you could feel that there was a purpose in this. You could see what the company would become, then had enough because of that vision or that intrinsic feel for it that you felt this was a temporary bump in the road, though a major bump, not a death sentence for the company.
4: I didn't think it was a death sentence for the company because I can always, so I at the time was still selling soap on the weekends, right? So the way that Brambleberry got started is that I would load up, I would make soap every evening. And then I would do Brambleberry kind of from nine to five during the day. And then I would make soap. And then every weekend, when there was a craft show, which is about seven months out of the year, I would drive to the craft show and I would sell soap on the weekends, sleep in my car usually, because there was never any money to actually pay for a hotel. And then I would drive back on either Sunday night or Monday morning, do Brambleberry and do that all over again. And so, I always knew that I could take care of myself, but at that point there was employees to worry about, right? I have to make sure that they, have a, that they have a plan. And so I could do my back of napkin calculations and say, okay, I just need to sell this much every single day and then I can afford to pay my employees.
1: Were there other sacrifices you had to make in the growth of what else did you have to do? I don't know at what point, just like make ends meet, make payroll, save money. What else were the kind of things you did?
4: Well, in addition to obviously maxing out every single credit card I had, um, I, we, I didn't go out to eat for seven years, not, not once, never went out to eat at a restaurant, not once in seven years, unless my parents were paying for it. And my parents were pretty horrified still that I was an entrepreneur at the time. Um, like there was three Christmases in a row that I didn't have heat because I didn't have, I couldn't afford heat um, for most of all those three years. Um, I had a fixer upper house that when you pushed on the walls, you could see the floor, you could see like the ground outside. Um, so there was a lot of things that I didn't have that were like creature comforts, but I had this big passion. Like I knew what I was doing was really valuable for people. People would write me and tell me it made a difference in their lives. And just one of those a week was enough to keep me going. And, and also I didn't really know any difference. Like, it's not like I'd been comfortable before and I got uncomfortable. I hadn't ever been comfortable.
1: You got through one flood, you can get through a digital flood. Okay, you get through it, pandemic comes. And what was the effect of the pandemic on your business? Because I can imagine multiple effects of that? People are staying at home. People are doing more online commerce. People are maybe have some more time on their hands. What was the effect on the business? Was it an increase or was it a decrease?
4: So it was good and bad. So here we spend a year and a half, like just building back. I mean, in it, like every week I'm literally looking at the president of the company, Norman, who's been with the company this whole time, you know, didn't take the paychecks, you know, 10 years ago in the summers. He's still with the company. We're just looking at each other.
1: So in terms of the business itself, you do about 25 to 30 million dollars in revenue. Yeah, 25 to 30. 30- million dollars in revenue. You have, how many people do you employ?
4: Uh, We're anywhere between 100 to 145 at any given time. It really just depends on the time of year and the mix of products that people are buying. Because obviously, like at Christmas time, people are buying a lot of gifts. So they're buying lots of kits, right? We're getting corporations that are gifting kits and that kind of thing. And the labor for that takes a lot more.
1: I see. So it, it fluctuates, but about 150 people depend on you for their livelihood. You're a leader in the field, you're going to top a lot of Google rankings of things like that. You're a thought leader as well. So you've come all this way, a remarkable story and yet you still have the next challenge. It's still coming. You don't ever really get complacent or you don't ever, do do you ever kick back? Do you ever get to kick back, Anne-Marie, and just sort of put your feet up and be like, I made it. I'm going to enjoy it now. I I did that. Or is it just the next challenge? And now people are revenge traveling and you've got to find a way to bring more people the joy of making your own soap and you just do it.
4: I just, Yeah, I just do it. Like with um, one of my children, I was back at work within three days. The other one was back at work within five days and brought brought her to work every single day while she was a baby, Uh, but it's not a hardship. I love it. I love my job. I love that it is hard. I love the challenge. It is a joy and a gift to be able to teach people how to make soap. And I do not take it for granted. So every single day is hard and it's a challenge, but I really feel so lucky, like just so, so lucky to live my calling.
1: Can you imagine yourself doing
4: anything else? Oh, no. If I'm doing anything, I'm going to be a book editor or I'm going to be running a scuba diving shop someplace.
2: Imagine you're the CEO of an organic landscaping company and then a restaurant chain. Next, a food delivery company. And finally, a vegetable noodle manufacturer. As a seasoned entrepreneur, you're no stranger to the power of ideas, yet It's crucial to remember, potent ideas pave the path for profound innovation. However, this innovation, as transformative as it can be, invariably
3: brings with it an array of formidable challenges. I get a call two months later and they said we're shutting the company down. I mean, that was a shot to the heart.
2: The journey of entrepreneurship is not just about sparking innovation, but also about adeptly navigating these complexities that arise. How would you handle the challenges of scaling a business from nothing? How do you go about finding funding? How would you go about confronting and understanding your own motivations? This
1: is the story of Mason Arnold, serial entrepreneur. Take me through, you mentioned three different companies. One went great. One did not go so great and one dragged on. What are those three so we get a lay of the land of the types of companies you're building?
3: So I was trained as a chemical engineer, went to work filing chemical and oil permits for chemical and oil companies. Saw these reports come across my desk, started to learn about sustainability and what was happening to the environment and it was making me sick. In Texas, where I live, the number one pollutant to Texas waterways is actually residential fertilizer. and Another report came across that organic fertilizers were better than synthetic in every way, shape, or form, and so I immediately put in notice and went to start my first company, which was an organic landscaping company. It was—it wasn't rocket science, you know. It was there's fundamentals of business involved there, but it's not a very complex business, and so that was a great first business for me. I learned a lot very early days of Google and Google ads. And so I was the only landscaper doing any kind of Google ads. And so that company went very well. I grew up for a couple of years. But as I learned more about sustainability, I wanted to get closer to either energy, water or food, which I think are major challenges from a sustainability perspective. So I sold that company. Um, You know, I was 24 years old, more money in the bank than I had ever thought. I actually moved to Spain to start a chain of restaurants. I thought, you know, this entrepreneurship thing is easy. I can go be international businessman. And in the course of a year, I lost all the money that I had made from the first company. I contracted a parasite and lost my girlfriend. And so I ended up moving back and landed on my mom's couch, broke, sick and alone and had, you know, proverbial walk with Jesus. I'm not very religious, but really had to be like, what the fuck is going on? And that's when I decided to make sure that sustainability was at the core of everything that I do because I want if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, I want to be able to feel like what I was doing up to today was making a difference. And so that next company that kind of dragged on, it was called Greenling. We were early in the grocery delivery space. We worked with local and organic um, products and and produce and farms and ran that for 10 years. And that was just a really tough and very complex business.
1: You have this second act, the business, it's kind of dragged on, you're trying to find your way. As part of this, issues that serial entrepreneurs face or entrepreneurs of any types, you actually get nudged out by investors, but then come back. Is that correct? Your own Steve Jobs, famous for getting kicked out of Apple, comes back and, of course, becomes, after that, legendary Steve Jobs. You had your experience with this, correct?
3: Yeah, it was insane. And it, at that company, it was called Greenling and we we're grocery delivery. And it was, you know, over time as a serial entrepreneur i had to figure out how to separate my personal brand from the company brands but at that time it was one in the same and like i was greenling greenling was me
1: if you get nudged out this is like a personal assault on you at this point if you're one in the same like this is you take offense at this
3: yeah and i was a personal guarantee on like a half million of debt and so these other people are running this company, but it was the only way for the investors at the time to continue to fund the company was if I left, and otherwise the company was going to shut down. So I made the tough decision said, "Okay, I'm going to hire uh, someone to replace me and leave, so that it can live on, because at that point, you know, it living on was more important to me than you know my particular involvement in it. But it wasn't like I got to go on vacation. I'm sitting there, you know." Wondering what they're doing with this company that has my name all over it and a ton of debt tied to me and they were supposed to fund it for another year and I get a call a day before the board meeting two months later and they said we're shutting the company down. And I I was just like, I mean, that was a shot to the heart. And I was like, guys, you've, you've got to give me an opportunity to find some other solution than just shutting down the company because we were working with farmers. We had orders for months in advance. It employed 90 people. It was a, you know, it was still doing good work in a good company. And they said, okay, well, we can, we'll, we'll let you try to find some other option, but we're running out of cash. So there's a time limit. I'm like, okay, I understand that. You know, how much time do I have? And they said two weeks. So I had to two weeks to try to figure out how to find new Investors. A leisurely two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And in that first week, I clocked it. I had 93 conversations to try to save the company. And as I was doing it, you know, in that two months when I had left, uh, they had contracted the business some um, and they had gotten it down to this point that when I was running the company prior at that size, it was profitable. And I was able to look at the P&L after they had contracted it and was like, I know, I, I actually know how to make this size company and this size headcount profitable because I'd done it before. And, um, I couldn't find, and and I found two vulture investors that were just going to decimate, completely wipe out the cap table, get rid of everything, change the change all kinds of things, and and they were all just bad situations for the company. And uh, But I'm telling this one investor, I'm like, you can make this profitable. Here's how you do it. Here's where you make cuts, and here's how you get the company back on its feet. And he's like, well, why don't you just do it? And I'm like, that's the last thing on the planet I want to do. And he's like, well, I don't think anyone else is going to do it. And so I tendered an offer to the investors to buy it back with the last cash advance on my last credit card is literally the last dollar i could massage out of anything in my entire world meaning if they reject this offer
1: try to hardball you or something else you can't do it you need them to take this offer
3: what happens it was the best offer for the company because i i didn't it was just a equity crammed down it, it's left investors in, intact but just a smaller portion of the company and i you know i bought my company back for essentially nothing and invested money off my credit card into it to buy me another two months of runway. And I said, okay, I have 60 days to get this company to break even or better. And I did it in 30 days. And in one month, I got the company profitable. But then it was still, it's grocery delivery with Amazon and Instacart breathing down is a, a tough space. And so, I was like, I've got to, I've got to find an exit for this, a home for this company and these customers and these farmers and everything. And so, but once I, you know, once I had it profitable, it was easier to find an acquirer and I'd spent the next six months, you know, brokering uh, deals and and sold the company. That brings us to CCs which is
1: probably the best known of the brands. I'm a customer of C.C.'s, so I'm familiar. And it, listeners, if you're wondering if you're a customer or not, you might be. If you're into, you love pasta type dishes, but you don't love the carbs involved in pasta type dishes. So you're gonna get these very elegantly cut veggies, zucchini and butternut squash and other things. And you're gonna make your cacio e pepe with veggies and it's gonna be great. That's C.C.'s, right? So tell me the journey of that as a phase and a whole sort of different scale of company.
3: Yeah, and so in that, those years of running Greenling and being an online retailer had products come to me all the time people launching new products and I got really good at guessing which ones are gonna make it based on the product attributes price point branding marketing all that and so I was like, I think I I think this CPG thing, I could be good at it. I think I could make a product. And at the same time, we had a value-added kitchen where we were processing vegetables, chopping onions and broccoli. And so I understood the cost structure. And but no one had I'd had a, a vegetable noodle on a cleanse one time. And I'm like I'm surprised no one has commercialized uh, this. And when I looked around for machines, no machines. The machines that existed just weren't couldn't make it fast enough and high quality enough. And I did a deep dive on the engineering. I invented a machine to make the product, make vegetable noodles in a more efficient and higher quality way than what was available out there and created a brand around this for the produce department we created a you know brand new category in produce and it was immediately just a rocket ship i think people didn't we hit product market timing perfect cuz keto was just starting to gain and so many people were trying to drop the carbs of pasta and so people i don't even think they knew they needed this product until they saw it and then they had to have it <laughs> and so That one was a lot of fun. We ended up number three on the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing companies in the country. We grew from nothing to 25 million in three years and grew from five people to 250 people in those three years. And I was able to bootstrap a lot of it uh, because I knew what happens when you take on outside money and the timelines that start with that. If you enjoy this show, you'll love Top CMO with me, Ben Kaplan.
1: There's never been a better chance or opportunity to do that.
4: I would definitely encourage marketers to be engaged in a product development process. The currency of banking is trust
1: This is the podcast where we go around the globe to interview marketing leaders from the world's biggest brands, fastest growing companies, and most disruptive startups. Available wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Imagine you're the CEO of Torquiatry, a trailblazing healthcare startup designed to revolutionize the mental healthcare landscape.
4: Insurance is a big barrier because if it's not covered, even though they need service, they may not go because they can't afford it.
2: Torquiatry operates at the intersection of psychiatry and insurance, ensuring access to quality mental health care that's both affordable and convenient. But this groundbreaking endeavor doesn't come without its challenges. How do you steer a healthcare startup through the tumultuous seas of a global pandemic while shifting to a robust telemedicine model? How do you scale a burgeoning practice amidst an escalating demand for mental health services? And in a competitive market, how do you attract skilled psychiatrists and provide them with a work environment that's truly unparalleled?
1: Robert, you've done all of this deep thinking, you leased an office space at the end of the year, you've got five psychiatrists on staff, you're ready to see your first patient. This is going to go great. And then you're going to scale to other locations. And COVID comes along and suddenly
6: what happens? So we hadn't accepted any appointments yet. So in the beginning of April, we were still planning our training on our electronic medical record and and some of our staff and things like that. And that training was planned to be in person. And this was right in the thick of, is COVID a thing? Is it not a thing? Nobody really knows, right? People are concerned. So it was very early. So up until literally the day that we started training, we were going back and forth on, do we do this in person? What do we do? Do we even open our doors? Do we delay the launch of the business? Like, you know, now looking back and it's like, of course you don't delay it, you're a behavioral health company. But back then it was still pretty kind of, we didn't know, you know, it was very difficult. We very quickly figured out that no, there's this, there's going to be a massive need and we are ready and we need to, we need to do it. Um, but man, did it throw uh, a wrench into the plans for training and everything. We had to start shipping computers to people. And, you know, we were, a small. I was, I was basically doing most of that work myself and my co-founder. So we didn't really have, you know, a technology team to be able to set these things up and send it. I was setting them up in my apartment. And so now we have to curry them. You know, I had to get a courier to bring them to people's apartments and things. So, um, but, It was always this question of, we're going to do telemedicine temporarily for right now, and we're going to come, we're going to see patients in person. So we were still setting up the office on the side when COVID was in the middle of happening. So you're saying, okay, COVID's
1: happening, had some support built for telemedicine, you'd be good if people, hard to get across Manhattan to come to our office, and it might not be nice to like call in or come in in a video chat or something like that. We can be fine, particularly psychiatry, there might be a lot that could be accomplished that you wouldn't have to be in person for. So you're gonna have that. It's a side thing, but then COVID plays that card. So now you're shifting to it. At this point, you're starting to see patients, you're doing it on a telemedicine basis and you're waiting for COVID to stop, right? And then how much time is going by? And are you able to successfully operate on this basis? Or are there are unforeseen challenges? You're repairing computers in your apartment. What else is happening in your thinking just to kind of get through this time?
6: I don't think you really have time to think, to be totally frank about you just have to operate. You, you you know what i mean we had i pulled the phones out of the office that we had and i connected it with an ethernet phone connected it in my my spare bedroom you know and i was taking calls from the front desk there and i'd eat my dinner in there just because you work 24 hours because you're working from home right um and you know the appointments kept coming in there was such a dire need for care and so we were super concerned about taking in patients who weren't going to be able to see us in person when COVID ended and we would ask every single patient, when COVID is over, are you within proximity that you can physically come into our office to see your doctor? I mean, we just didn't know. And this went on for, I would say, probably a good, you know, nine months of us kind of waffling and, and saying, like, we're going to have physical locations. We're continuing to look for other space. for example. You know, the practice is growing. We're bringing on additional doctors. The patient volume continues to increase. But we had to onboard. We onboarded hundreds and hundreds of employees remotely. We have 850 employees today and most of them have never been in person. So I think it's a very different story when you had an in-person culture that you then need to try to port to working virtually, but we just grew up with a virtual culture, if you will, right? So it's just natural to our employees and how we operate. Um, But we just figured that out as we go. We didn't have an opportunity to do it any other way. And then, you know, probably nine months in, we started to survey our doctors, our patients and saying, do you need to come in? Do you ever want to come in? You know, and the answer was people moved around a lot, and the answer we got back was no. Uh, like, like I, we're, we saw better adherence. You come to your appointment more often if you don't have to drive 30 minutes to get to it.
1: And you're in the pandemic, so much of it has steered you towards telemesis. People are experiencing some mental health issues from being isolated and having their lives disrupted and being worried about whether they're gonna get COVID or not and worried about, other things with family members and all of that, so that's actually pushing you forward as well.
6: Yeah, I remember he asked me when he came to to the office to visit. He had to fly in because he wasn't, he didn't live in New York. Um, and he said, you know, after meeting myself, Georgia, and he said, why, well, you know. Why do you need me here? I'm expecting to find something that's broken. There's a lot of problems, but I, I'm not finding it, and I, I'm not clear why you need me at this stage. And our answer was very simple, which is you know neither Georgia or myself specifically have a lot of experience, um, you know, managing a practice with a, with so many doctors. He did, but it was kind of looking at it saying we are so confident in where this is going to go that we 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 want to make sure that we're building and laying the right groundwork. Do it at scale, rather than building something that you then have to change a year later, and that's never great when you when you're providing care to patients and ultimately right responsible for their life at a certain point. Um, and I think that was exciting to him. You know, he's like, "Wow, I can I can get in here and I can I can build something really significant, and it's got the bones and the framework to be able to do that." On the technology side, my CTO told me no when I first offered him the job, uh, and I, I got introduced to him through a friend, and I wanted him to work to work on a project creating an intake for us online. Um, and he liked that, that, uh, that opportunity, but he didn't want to work here full-time, and he didn't understand that that it was sustainable, what, what we were doing, perhaps. And it took um, some time to convince him, where he said, like, "Well, I don't understand why you can do this, and nobody else can't. Like I've talked to my friends that are psychiatrists. Everyone's basically saying that you can't do what you're doing. It doesn't work when you take commercial insurance. And I had to explain to him kind of the work that we had done for years, and then he finally got it. And he said, okay, wow, this is really interesting. But the reason why he came here is because um, we're not a healthcare, we're not a technology company, we're a healthcare company. And the, the big things that technology folks and engineers have is when you build software, you wanna build it for an end user. And you want to see the impact of your work. You want to be closer to them to, get, to build the best piece of software. You need to really understand what their problems were. And so you're at a software company that's selling the software to a bunch of people. You, you don't have that. And if, you're, if your goal, if you're in healthcare technology, you're, you're doing it to impact the outcome of patient care. And if, you have, if you're so far removed from that, you're not going to be as impactful. So what attracted him and his entire team to talk IH really was the fact that we were a healthcare provider. And that they were being so close to the physicians. They could walk across the hall or they can call someone and they can say, hey, I've got a question. I'm building this. Yo, do you want it this way or that way? And you don't get that when you're at a SaaS company building something for an end user. That's a lot harder to do. You got to get studies. You got to ask to reach out to people. So the collaboration was closer. So the, the development cycle could move a lot quicker and you could end up with a better product and an outcome at the end of the day. But they all wanted to work for a healthcare company, not a technology company um, at the end of the day, which I think you know helped us there. Get the right people. Mission driven.
1: And just reflecting back on, on everything that's happened three years prior to April 2020, now we've gone about three years after that. Do you think you would be where you are and psychiatry would be where it is without COVID? Do you think that what that forced, whether that's telemedicine, whether that forced focus on mental health was for your business, something that was critical to your journey?
6: I think it was. Um, I don't think we would be exactly where we are today, Ryan. I think, I think what COVID did was was shine a giant spotlight. It wasn't that these issues weren't already here. They've been here for decades, and most of the research reports are prior to COVID, highlighting this issue. The shortage of psychiatrists were here for a long time before this. I think what COVID did was shine a big light on it, and everyone's saying, "Oh my God, now we can see." We're and, we're and we're all concerned about it. And I think that that um, if you created a solution that solved all of those things, and now there's a massive spotlight. On you and the industry where it wasn't there before you know that only that only helps um and i also think again i mentioned the reduction of stigma was huge but people seeking access to care and being okay with it um i think it's something that again is some is is, is a big focus and and you know the, all of the attention that mental health care got during covid whether it was from employers whether it's from patients insurance companies providers realizing there's an alternative way to care for a patient right well so they were forced to do telemedicine even if they didn't know if it worked or didn't work right back in the day, they were forced to do it because of COVID. And so they were forced to get comfortable with it. And they were forced to then, now you had the ability to look at the efficacy of telemedicine versus in-person care and come out with the data. So I think a lot of those things would have taken much, much longer to do if it wasn't for a giant spotlight of COVID, which accelerated all of it. I think it accelerated tremendously than it would have happened before. That's kind of how I think about it.
2: Imagine you're the CEO of Portland Leather Goods. You are nestled in the heart of Portland. Here, genuine leather is alchemized into artifacts of desire. You produce leather goods in record time. And then, the world changed.
0: COVID struck, casting a shadow over everything you had built. I was basically drinking myself to death. What am I gonna do with my life?
2: With the city's decree, the heartbeats of artisans were missing. Workshops dormant, the future uncertain. Yet, in the heart of adversity, a glimmer of hope. You believe that business isn't just about numbers or strategy, it's a cross between art and magic How do you take an empty workshop during a global pandemic and turn the tides of disaster? As Portland shuts down and jobs are lost, how do you navigate this challenging landscape and bring the magic back? This is the story of Curtis Matsko, and this is the Phoenix of
1: Portland. Curtis Take me back to Portland, Oregon, circa 2020, the beginning of the pandemic, when suddenly you've got 70 or 80 artists and leather makers that come into your workshop in Portland to do things. But there's only one problem which is now, we're not allowed to do that. It's the pandemic. And set the scene and what you were thinking when all of this was going on and you'd already built a $4 million business.
0: It was so great because we bought this beautiful building, 24,000 square foot, got it all made with these wooden tables, hired these artisans and trained them in Portland what to do. I went down to Las Vegas to watch Pac-12 Women's Basketball Championship. People started talking about this thing called COVID. Ah, I don't need it, don't worry about it. Flew back, three days later, Oregon said, shut down.
1: So you have this beautiful facility. You got people coming in and you got, just to give the listeners a sense of the orders right now, you have Etsy stores. You're a top 10 Etsy store. We were just blowing up.
0: We were doing great. We thought we were top of the world and literally just shut down. Everyone goes home and we had about five or six people still coming in. And we walked down in the basement. We had some things that were made and we're like, we can try to sell this up, but we got a month. We got a month left. And my, my marketing guy, his name is Maverick. And he's, brilliant. He's brilliant and that he's naive enough to just believe everything's going to work out, right? And he said, Curtis, books will be written about people who got afraid and people who were bold. It is not time to be afraid of the pandemic. It is time to be bold. And I said, sounds good to me. And I got on a plane with three masks and it was the only one to Mexico, to Guadalajara had some people I knew from León, Mexico. Remember I said the all leather in North America is made in Lyon? Somebody picked me up at the airport, drove me in. Something magical had happened, Ben. All the artisans who make all the leather shoes that you know of, these top hands that you know of, all of those people had been laid off because of the pandemic. They could still work and they wanted to work. So you could really spread them out wide in a big, huge facility where they could sit 20 feet apart. We got five sewers who were willing to start sewing our bags, shipping them in. Then we went to 10 sewers, and then to 20, and then to 30, and then grew and grew and grew. And it's miraculous, quality of the people and what happened in that the last three years. So it was scary. But then I met uh, a gentleman, his name is Fabian. His father ran a leather bag making facility, and his goal in life was to run one. And he said, give me a room and a place to plug in machines, and I already have friends who are the best artisans, and I will take care of everything. And he's one of those people that you trust. You know what I'm talking about. You know this guy is just never going to lie to you. He is going to do what it is. And I trust him, I said, here you go. Here's a bunch of money, here's my trust, here's my respect, here's my future, can you make it happen? And guess what, he did. He literally created this up. And then another woman we met named Adriana, she was making $6 an hour at a tannery when I first met her several years ago. And she was, she was just great. She now runs all of my operations worldwide. She now literally runs all of my companies. She's the most amazing person. And I said, Adriana, can you do this? And she said, I've never done it before, but let me try. Boom, 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 boom. And those two people are the ones who gave me the confidence to move forward. Because I don't think you can do this thing on your own Ben. I know you hear a lot about solopreneurs. If I'm not around good, positive people, I will freeze up somewhat. I need to be able to say my idea out loud to somebody and have them say, Curtis, that's a good idea. We can do this together. If I don't have that, I will not leave my house. I have people I trust more than I trust myself that run all of this. And I have a lot of experience just meeting people and making them better. And I don't hire people who say they're great. I hire people that I know are really good inside who themselves are driven. And I don't have to motivate them. All I have to do is say, you can do it. You're better than you think you are. It's okay. We can do this together. And that is the number one thing that I do in this world is I take a good team and I let them know everything's gonna work. We always do and we move forward as a team.
2: Imagine you're the CEO of MediaOcean, the mission critical platform for omni-channel advertising. Your business model to serve as the all-important operating system for the advertising industry imagine the monumental task of steering such an enterprise through the rapidly evolving advertising landscape the challenge of shaking up the entrenched linear tv industry with a digital data-driven vision comfortably settled industry giants unwilling to let go of their familiar methods. Will you manage to crack the code? Or will the monumental resistance from an industry deeply set in its ways prove too much? This is the story of Bill
1: Wise, CEO of MediaOcean, And this is The Adjustment. Bill, one of the things that's interesting about your vision for ad tech is some of the resistance that prevented that vision from taking place. Obviously we've seen, you know, huge growth in sort of digital media. Maybe other types of media that were not digital lag behind. Talk us to start with this challenge you faced of you kind of see where the snowball needs to go, but there's lots of forces that prevent that from happening and that was a primary challenge for Media Ocean.
5: Yeah, Ben, I thanks for having me on and I appreciate the question, when I look back, I had this vision for what is now MediOcean 15 years ago. And the irony is I'm just starting to actually execute on the vision that I had 15 years ago, which is so incredibly unique. Let me tell you maybe how I got here. I started my career as an accountant. Uh, luckily, I wasn't a very good one. So there was a digital advertising company called DoubleClick who hired me when they were a small startup that just moved from Atlanta to New York. Um, obviously, DoubleClick is part of Google now and a huge part of the ecosystem. But so I got into digital ad tech by just by happen chance, uh, luck and you know, managed my way. And then I just became an entrepreneur and I started a couple of companies. Some were successful, some weren't. And uh, so I actually went to Cincinnati, met with Procter & Gamble and pitched them on becoming their own ad tech company. Uh, they ended up creating what became the first DSP in the market you know, we got a quarter billion dollars to test this out from Procter & Gamble. I was in Cincinnati presenting to their marketing investment committee. And they said, hey, Bill, have you ever thought of applying all of this data-driven marketing to traditional media like television? And I said, Mark, is Mark Pritchard at the time, I was like, I don't even know how TV is bought and sold. I'm a digital guy. And he was like, you should look into that because for Procter & Gamble, digital is millions traditional and TV is billions. And so kind of the entrepreneur in me was like, all right, how is television bought and sold? So everywhere I turned, there was this company called Donovan Data Systems. And for lack of a better analogy, they were the double click of TV, right? They were the ad tech company around processing all of the TV spent. And so literally the entrepreneur in me found a little startup in Chicago called Media Bank. I cold called the founders and said, you're sitting on a billion dollar idea And I'm the guy who's going to get you there. And they were like, what's the vision? I was like, the vision is that the TV market eventually will look and feel like the digital ad tech market or digital advertising market looks today, right? It's going to be data-driven. It's going to be programmatic. It's going to be automated, right? AI didn't exist then, but it's going to be laced in AI and automation. And so that was the vision I had for what's now MediaOcean. I had that in 2009. And the incredible part is, the industry was so set in its ways that just now i'm starting to really realize on that vision that i had 15 years ago
1: what does that mean for the entrenched powers then that want the status quo that it took a while to work through and figure out how to do it
5: they literally kicked me out of meetings i would go into television organizations and talk about how digital is going to disrupt what you're doing all media is going to be connected through an ip address right it's going to be digital it's going to be programmatic it's going to be data And literally, I I literally was physically removed um, from some organizations. And I literally thought to myself, I just ruined my career. I had a great digital advertising career. I literally just ruined my career. That's that's literally what I thought for about a year. What did you do then? I was so confident in where the market ends up that I was like, I can't give this up. Right. We have to transform this linear side of the TV business. And it's not just TV, it's also things like radio, right? Pandora was starting to become popular, right? Spotify a little bit back then. So I, I didn't give up. And in fact, what's interesting, you know, is if you want to disrupt an industry that doesn't want to be disrupt, the best way to do that is to own all the workflow for that industry. So we were a startup. There was a company called Donovan Data Systems that was founded in 1967. They work with every single agency, ad agency, in all the major markets, which gave them access to every single major marketer and had direct links into every single major broadcaster like NBC, CBS, Fox, et cetera. So I said, hey, if they're not gonna believe in my vision, I gotta go on all the workflow and start changing the workflow. So MediaBank, the startup I was running, merged with Donovan Data Systems to actually form MediaOcean, which is the name of the company today. And by virtue of that merger, we basically took over $70 billion of TV spend almost overnight. And then the real work started beginning, which is, you know, how do we transform this legacy business that kind of isn't broke, right? Um, That was the biggest pushback I got was stop trying to disrupt something that doesn't need to be disrupted. And it really was consumer behavior that needed to be the catalyst to make it, you know, where they say, okay, fine. Now we need to, we need to evolve or die, I was 10 years early to the party, right? Um, but luckily, I was able to kind of generate revenue in other ways and, you know, and kind of wait it out, you know, uh, until now, basically. What I would say is, you know, I say all the time, like, I'm actually not qualified to do anything in ocean other than run it. So it's a good thing I'm CEO. Surround yourselves with the best talent, surround yourselves with people who are much better than you. And then that allows you to focus on some of the soft skills, like what is your company culture? What do you want that to represent? You know, how do you think about your greatest asset, which is your people? And where do we need to be in the next two, three, and five years?
2: In the world of business, each venture comes with its unique challenges and every leader faces their own trials and triumphs. But all challenges were met and all problems solved with grit and cunning. And with that, it's cases closed. This was brought to you by Top Thought Leader. Find out more at topthoughtleader.com.